Well, I hope you all enjoyed the speaker last Sunday. It was helpful to, to get that history lesson and, and the, 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 it's not just the historical basis for our constitutional rights, but also the biblical basis for our constitutional rights. And it's, it was nice to see the Christian heritage of our nation. I especially liked what John Tyler did in taking us back to the original documents. You know, he's a lawyer. He can't help himself to, but to pull out the evidence. And so taking us back to the Virginia Charter back from 1606, back then Virginia, he taught us, was, wasn't just uh, the state of Virginia, but from South Carolina all the way up to Maine. And that language from the Virginia Charter from 1606, that the purpose for the colony was for the propagating of the Christian religion, or the language from the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact in 1620, before the pilgrims got off their boat, they took time, before we get off this cramped vessel, they took time to draft a compact, a contract. And that contract said that the pilgrims came to the New World for the, quote, advancement of the Christian faith. I love that. You know why I love that? Because it teaches us our Christian background. It teaches us, in the face of a contrary message from the culture, it teaches us that the freedoms that we have are not a historical accident. The freedoms that we have are a product of the Christian worldview of the founding fathers. I didn't say the, the, the Muslim worldview of the founding fathers. I didn't say the Buddhist worldview of the founding fathers. I didn't say the secular humanist view of the founding fathers. I said the Christian view of the founding fathers. And on the eve of Independence Day, tomorrow, we celebrate another document, the Declaration of Independence, which as we studied last year, has Christianity's fingerprints all over it. There are all kinds of biblical principles. We saw that last year. All kinds of biblical principles in the Declaration of Independence. And so today, as every Sunday, we utilize our First Amendment rights to peaceably assemble and to engage in the free exercise of religion. That's what it says in the First Amendment. And in that regard, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you're not already there. Last time we were together on the study of John, we saw verses 1 through 10 where Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well. He asks for a drink from the woman. And this surprises the Samaritan woman because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. She's a woman and he's a male. And this is a complete social faux pas that Jesus is committing. I mean, he's taking all of the traditions, the Jewish traditions, and he's poking the traditions in the eye. Because it is the tradition of the Jews, since there's so much conflict, so much antagonism between these two groups, between the Jews and the Samaritans, the tradition was that the Jews didn't even talk to the Samaritans because of all this animosity. Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women, and certainly a Jewish rabbi wouldn't talk to a Jewish woman. But Jesus is going to do more than talk to her. He's going to say, I'm willing to drink from the vessel that you drink from. I mean, this is revolutionary. Revolutionary. 
Jesus couldn't care less about the traditions because there was a soul to save. And so he is there to give the words of hope to this woman. As we saw last time, let me just spend a few minutes of review since it's been a couple of weeks. As we saw last time, this tradition of animosity between these two groups came from centuries and centuries of hostility. The people who lived in the region of Samaria were initially Jews. And then over the centuries, because of conquest, the the Assyrian conquest and other conquests, Gentiles came in. And so there was a lot of intermarriage over the centuries in the group of in the area of Samaria for the group of Samaritans so they were racially different almost kind of half Jewish half Gentile but really more Jewish than excuse me more Gentile than Jewish but they were also religiously different they worshiped or they had as their book of worship not the full Hebrew Bible because remember the Samaritans come in in 722 BC And they sow into that region foreign peoples. They brought immigrants in with their pagan religions. And so the Samaritans don't worship the Lord who was revealed in the entire Hebrew Scripture. They only follow the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And and actually their Samaritan Bible is a little different than the Hebrew Bible. So they're religiously different. And they're racially different. They create their own rival temple at Mount Gerizim. We're not going to go worship in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. We're going to worship at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So they have a rival temple. They have a rival religion. This is kind of the historical backdrop for all of this conflict between these two groups. So by way of review, let's begin in verse 9 of chapter 4. There we read, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, What is it that you, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's amazed that this Jewish man is ignoring the Jewish traditions. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink... You would, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is giving her a lesson in theology, a lesson in who he is and what he does. Living water, this phrase that he uses at the end of the verse, is tson hudor. Tson hudor in the Greek. Living water, it has a double meaning. What most people would think of, as the Samaritan woman does, when she hears tzon hudor, is fresh water, flowing water, as opposed to stagnant water. But there's another meaning for it. It's the meaning that's from the scriptures. It's the meaning that Jesus is using, which is a spiritual meaning, not literal, fresh H2O, but a spiritual meaning for, for living water, which is the symbolic metaphor for the free gift of eternal life. The Holy Spirit cleanses the filthy sinner. The Holy Spirit revitalizes the sinner who is dried up and withering away. Water is essential for life. Physical life 
and spiritual life. No water, no life. You can last about three days without water. Then you die. That's literal water. But here Jesus is speaking of the symbolic, metaphorical meaning of living water. In verse 10, Jesus is giving this theological lesson by using three statements. Three statements. Statement number one, I'm the one who gives living water. So if we were to say that in theological terms, as we saw last time, we'd say that Christ alone is the Savior. Statement number two, living water is the gift of God. That's the phrase he uses, right? Gift of God. If we were putting that in theological lingo, we'd say eternal life, salvation, is from the grace of God. Statement number three that Jesus makes in verse 10 is, Ask me and I will give you living water. If we were taking a theological exam in seminary, we'd say salvation is through faith in Jesus' work, in the work of Christ, not in our own works. This is a three-pronged theological lesson that he is giving her in verse 10, but the woman learns none of it. She understands and appreciates none of it, at least right now. She's thinking in terms of physical things. She doesn't get it, at least not initially. Look at verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's spiritually blind. He's speaking to her of spiritual things, and she thinks of physical, material things, just like Nicodemus, right? In John chapter 3, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' response is, How does that work? How do I get back in my mother's womb? He's thinking of physical, material things, the material world. This is the same thing that the woman is doing here at the well. She's saying, the well is deep. You've got no bucket. And where in the world are you going to get water? If you're not going to get it from the well, where are you going to get this fresh water that you're talking about? Really what she's doing is she's doubting Jesus' ability to, to perform. She's doubting his ability to perform what he says he can do. Faith in the God-man, trust in the God-man is essential. Remember Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let me say that again. You have to believe that God is, number one, and number two, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Believing in God is not enough. The person who says, I believe in God, well, good for you. But that's not enough. That's not enough. You need the second part, too. There are two elements here. The second element is you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. When Jesus says, I offer you eternal life, and the person says, I believe in God, but I don't believe, I don't trust that you would give me eternal life. In fact, eternal life, whatever, why is that of significance to me? That person is not saved, even though they believe in God. They don't believe that God, God in the flesh, the God-man, is a rewarder of those who seek him. You must believe that God is able to perform, ready, willing, and able to perform the promises that he has given. 
we're talking about God in the flesh. The Samaritan woman is not quite there yet. Look at verse 12. She says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. She's asking a question. Her question assumes a negative answer. She's challenging Jesus' qualification to provide water. She's saying, we've gotten well. We've gotten water out of this well for centuries. We've inherited the well from the patriarch Jacob. You say you're offering better water than our patriarch has provided us from the centuries-old well that is deep. You say you're offering better water than he provided, and yet you don't even have a bucket to draw it from. I mean, are we even having the same conversation, Jesus? You're talking about water, but there's no streams here. Remember, they're in a real semi-arid area. They would appreciate our burn bands that we have. They'd understand that. Super dry, just like we are right now. And so your, your main source of water is in a water well. Jesus has no water well. This is their water well. Jesus, even if he had a water well, doesn't have a bucket to draw. And so she doesn't understand what he is talking about because she is thinking through her spiritual blindness. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is making a contrast. A contrast between literal, physical, material water and the spiritual, eternal, living water that he is offering. You see, physical water, the the material water that she is thinking of only temporarily satisfies. We have needs in this world. I'm not talking about wants. I'll talk about wants in a second. We have needs. Water, food, rest, relaxation. You must sleep. You will ultimately die if you stop sleeping. You must have food. You will die if you don't have food. You must have water. You must have rest. You must have those things. Those are your needs. But even though you need them and you get them, They don't fully satisfy. You have the need again the next day. you got to sleep the next day. You need water the next day. You need food the next day. The needs that we have, when we fulfill that need, it's a temporary satisfaction. But Jesus is talking about a forever satisfaction. Same principle with respect to wants, right? Pleasure, sex, entertainment, Leisure, those are wants. By the way, God made all those things. Nothing wrong with sex, nothing wrong with leisure, nothing wrong with entertainment. God created all those things. But they don't fully satisfy either. The things of this world do not fully satisfy. They're not designed by God to fully satisfy. Jesus is talking about something that will completely, absolutely, forever satisfy. That's what he's describing here in these two verses. Water that is forever satisfying. Only Jesus offers water that does this. Look at the beginning of verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never 
thirst. Literally in the Greek, it reads, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst for the ages, for the eons. Because it ends there in the Greek with the Greek word ion. It's shall never thirst ion, where we get our English word eon. It's saying, Jesus is saying, the water that I'm offering you is water that will satisfy you forever, for the eons, for the ages. He's talking not about quantity of life. Everybody's going to live forever. He's talking about quality of life. Everybody will live forever, either with the author of life or with the destroyer of life. That's not what Jesus is talking about, quantity. He's talking about quality of life. He's talking about eternal life. John gives us many beautiful descriptions of the quality of life that Jesus offers. John 5, 29, Jesus will bring about the resurrection of life. John 6, 35, Jesus is the bread of life. John 8, 12, Jesus offers the light of life. 1 John 1, 1, Jesus is the word of life. Revelation 2, 7, written by the same apostle John There we see that Jesus promises the right to eat from the tree of life found in the paradise of God. These are the descriptions of what quality of life for the eons, for the ages, looks like. Or Revelation 21, verse 8, where the blessings forever are found only, only for those who are listed in Jesus' book of life. Or the phrase there is the Lamb's book of life. This is what Jesus offers. Quality of life forever. This is what he is offering to the woman. Jesus' offer of the blessing of salvation pictured as the free, refreshing water of eternal life is right out of the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. And that's why you see Jesus doing these things. These miracles, the miracles that Jesus did. I mean, you ask yourself, why didn't he turn a rock into a hippopotamus? Right? Why didn't he turn a palm tree into a frog? Why the miracles that he did? Because the miracles that he did are what the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would do. And so... It's his calling card. It's his badge. It's his badge of authority. I am who I say I am, and let me show you. I am the promised Messiah. Let me show you. That's why his words match the words of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, for this imagery of water, refreshing, free water of eternal life. Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts comes to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy and eat. By wine and milk, without money and without cost. You see, what God offers is free. In the world, when someone comes up and says, I got something free for you. 
ding, 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 your radar should go up. Say, ooh, there's some strings. Uh, Not with God. Because God offers and provides and blesses out of his largesse, just out of his grace and mercy and love. So then, look at verse 3 of Isaiah 55 on the screen. Listen that you may live. The waters provide life. This is the imagery, the picture of free, refreshing water as an image of eternal life, as an image of salvation. Then in verse 15, the woman, the woman gives her response to Jesus' offer of eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I want some of that water because it's work and it's hot. I don't want to come here to the well and get more water. I want water. I want some of that magic mojo water that you got so that I can drink it and I don't have to come back and work at the well anymore. You see, she's still thinking and and seeing through her spiritual blindness glasses. Jesus is going to take off those glasses or help her take off those glasses in a moment as the verses unfold. But she's still thinking in terms of literal, physical water. So she says, give me some of that. She doesn't understand exactly what she's asking for. And so now Jesus is going to redirect the conversation to open her spiritually blind eyes. And he's going to do it two ways. Two parts to the way he's going to do this. First, he's going to expose her sin. And second, he's going to dismantle her presupposition that she's all good. He's going to dismantle her presupposition that her religious identity makes her all good. Everybody in the, the, these two chapters, first you got Nicodemus in chapter 3, now you have the Samaritan woman in, in chapter 4. They think they're good for different reasons, but they each think they're good. And so Jesus dismantles their presupposition, their preconceived idea. Remember when Nicodemus, he, Jesus exposes Nicodemus's, he does both things. First he exposes Nicodemus's sin, of self-righteousness. He's a self-righteous Pharisee. And then Jesus dismantles his presupposition. How does Jesus expose his sin? He says, you must be born again, which is to say everything about you is inadequate. Everything about you is unappealing to the God who is, to the God of heaven. You're not righteous. You think you're righteous as a Pharisee. So Jesus exposes his sin of self-righteousness. Then he dismantles Nicodemus's presupposition his preconceived idea that God is happy with him that God is satisfied with him because he's in compliance with the law he's not really in compliance with the law he's got outward compliance look at me I'm a good law follower I'm a good law follower but his heart like every other human being is broken Jesus exposes the sin of Nicodemus, dismantles his presupposition that he's good with God, and now Jesus is going to do the same thing with a woman. Look at verse 16. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She gives a quick answer. I have no husband. And she wants the conversation to end right there. I got no husband. 
And Jesus says, that's right. You've had five husbands. Five men that you've been married to. Because there's a lot more to the story that I have no husband. And Jesus reveals to her that he knows all of it. That he knows everything about her. He just met this woman. And she's a Samaritan. It's not like Jesus has been hanging out in Samaria with the Samaritans. No. He knows everything about this woman. And what we're seeing here is the hypostatic union. We're seeing the deity of Christ. He's omniscient. And the humanity of Christ. He thirsted. He got tired. That's why he asked the woman for a drink. These five prior marriages, we don't know how those marriages ended. Is it possible that each man died and that's how the the marriage was dissolved? Possible, but not likely. Not likely. The implication is that one or more of these marriages ended in a divorce that was sinful. There's certain... There are certain reasons that someone can get divorced. And there are other reasons where it's sinful to get divorced. Jesus said that it's permissible to get a divorce if, someone, if, if one spouse is unfaithful. Paul said it's permissible to get a divorce if an unbeliever and a believer are married and the unbeliever abandons the believer. Now, the believer is not supposed to get married with an unbeliever in the first place. You're not supposed to be unequally yoked. But there's a very limited list of reasons for getting divorced. God said in Malachi, God hates divorce. So it's a very limited number of reasons to get divorced. Now, of course, a woman, if, if a woman is being abused by a man, she needs to get out of there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the specific reasons for divorce. They're very limited. And the implication here is that this woman, the, the, the dissolution of one or more of those five prior marriages, the implication is that it was a divorce that was not proper. The text doesn't tell us that, but that's certainly the suggestion. We can't say it definitively. What we can say definitively is that she's living in fornication now. She's shacking up with a sixth Man, that's clear by the text. What Jesus is doing is exposing her inadequacy. He's exposing her sin of immorality. And notice that he does it very delicately. He does it in a very high-class way. He does it complimenting her. He compliments her twice. He exposes her sin, and yet at the same time, he compliments her twice for telling the truth. Can you imagine God complimenting you? Or me, God in the flesh, well said. You said the truth. That's accurate what you said. I mean, this is a huge compliment that God in the flesh is giving her. She speaks the truth, and he says it twice. At the same time, he's exposing her the fornication that she's engaged in because his objective is to make clear to her that she has a need and that he can fulfill the need. The need is that she's a sinner and she needs a Savior. We can learn so much about how to present the gospel to someone by watching Jesus. He does two things. He exposes the person's sin and he guts, he dismantles the preconceived idea idea that the person has that I'm good with God. He He does both of those things for Nicodemus 
and for the woman at the well. Look at her response in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem, she's saying, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She calls him a prophet. She believes that Jesus is a man of God because he knows about her, even though he doesn't know her. He has super knowledge, supernatural knowledge about who she is. This makes her uncomfortable. And so she uses the age-old tool, the age-old trick, deflection. Let's change the topic of the conversation, right? Someone asks you a question. It's actually an old lawyer trick. You don't want to answer the question, so you ask them a question. So you're kind of redirecting the deal. You're redirecting the conversation. She says, no, 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 let's not talk about my sin. Let's, the fact that I'm a sinner, the fact that I'm inadequate before God. Let's, talk, let's have a theological conversation. Let's have a theological geography conversation about geography. Our mountain, Mount Gerizim, versus your mountain, Mount Zion. She's trying to redirect the conversation to get it off of her But Jesus doesn't answer her question. Of course, the answer to the question is the proper place to worship is in Jerusalem because the Samaritans really had a counterfeit brand of Yahwehism. The proper place to worship is in Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say that because he's not going to go off on this rabbit trail that she wants to take him on. Instead, he proceeds to dismantle her presupposition. Her presupposition is that our worshiping at the proper location, they believe is the proper location, Mount Gerizim, makes us right with God. That's her preconceived idea. That's that's what is in her mind. Look at Jesus' response, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, Woman, in the Greek that is gune, as I've mentioned before, my recommendation to the men in this room is not to address a lady that way. Don't say, woman! That's not very smart. That's not what Jesus is doing. Gune in the Greek is, is a, is a um, you, you could translate it madam, ma'am. It's a, it's a respectful term. And what Jesus says here in verse 21 is, believe me, this is, in the, this is an imperative Believe me, trust me about what I'm about to tell you. And look at the end. Well, let me read the whole thing again. An hour is coming whether neither, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will y'all, the you there is plural, will y'all, you all, worship the Father. Will you Samaritans worship the Father? An hour is coming where you're going to worship the Father, not in Jerusalem, not at Mount Gerizim, in neither of those places. She wants to have a theological geography conversation, and Jesus says, no. We're going to have a conversation that dismantles your preconceived idea, and he begins it with an hour is coming. That's how verse 20 begins. An hour is coming. Excuse me, verse 21. He's referring to his hour. Last time this phrase was used was when Jesus was speaking with his mother. In John chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, My hour has not yet come. 
As we saw there, that is a phrase that we're going to see repeated a number of times in the book of John. His hour, my hour, Jesus' hour is a description of his glorification. His glorification that will come through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, through the ascension, and his session, his being seated at the right hand of the Father. His hour would make the temple in Jerusalem irrelevant, obsolete. Words that would be an anathema to a Jew. The temple, irrelevant. What are you talking about? We've had the temple for a thousand years since Solomon. Yes, there was a period where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed it, but then they rebuilt it when they came back. The temple, irrelevant? The Jewish mind would have thought. The Jewish tongue would have spoke. That's why when Jesus was in the temple and he's cleansing the temple of the money changers and those who are turning it into a circus, into a Persian bazaar circus, into this market. What does he say? In John chapter 2, verse 19, he says to the religious leaders that are there at the temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They haven't the foggiest idea what he's talking about. Because the whole idea of the temple not existing was unthinkable to these guys. Not even Jesus' disciples understood what he said understood what he meant. They wouldn't understand it until he was resurrected. He was talking about his body. You kill me and I will live again in three days, is what Jesus was saying. Following his death and resurrection, true worship would no longer be centered in a structure of sticks and bricks, sticks and stones. It wouldn't be centered anymore in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It would be centered in and through Jesus the temple in Jerusalem would become unnecessary and irrelevant when Jesus' hour came. At least, to be more specific, it would become irrelevant and unnecessary in the age that would follow Jesus' hour. Jesus' hour being his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. What's the age that follows that? I mean, like a matter of days following his ascension. Remember in Acts 1? The church age begins in Acts 2, right? It begins in Acts 2. What happens in Acts 1? In Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends, Acts 1.8, Jesus sends the disciples. They stop being disciples and they become apostles. Disciple means student. Apostle means sent one. He sends them. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. I'm going to send you to the community of this woman at the well that I met and that I talked to when he was in his ministry. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the world, Fredericksburg, Texas. All right? We know of Jesus because of what the apostles told us. Or what the apostles told others, like Paul told Luke, and Luke recorded it for us. We know of God because of what God revealed to Jesus, and Jesus revealed to the apostles, and the apostles revealed to us. Remember, Jesus is fully God, fully man. But as a man, in the hypostatic union, Jesus learned. The point is this. The age that would come after Jesus' hour is the church age. 
And so in the church age, guess what happened? A.D. 70, which is just a few decades after Jesus utters the words in Acts 1, just a few decades later, the Roman general Titus, later to become the Roman emperor Titus, destroys Jerusalem, sacks the temple, destroys the temple, and there's been no temple ever since for 2,000 years. There's no temple in Jerusalem today because the temple in this age is irrelevant, not in the age to come. When Christ returns, we know from the book of Ezekiel, there will be a temple in Jerusalem and worship will return there to Jerusalem because that's where Jesus will be. But in this age, worship of God is centered in and through the person of Jesus, through the body of Christ. Right? What did he say in John 2 to the people, to the religious leaders? I will raise my body, tear down this temple, and I will raise it in three days. He's talking about his body. Our worship today is centered through the church, the universal church, which is to say the body of Christ. This is what Jesus is communicating in seed form to this woman, and then the apostles will unpack this as the church age goes on. Jesus will teach more of it through John, through the book of John, but the apostles will really unpack it for us, the, the mystery doctrines of the church age, especially the apostle Paul. Jesus' point as this conversation goes on will be, get your mind off of the temples. Get your mind off of the temple at Mount Gerizim. Get your mind off of the temple at Jerusalem. Those are going to be very soon irrelevant. You're looking at the temple, Jesus says. You're looking at the temple. The temple is speaking to you. Worship will be centered. Worship of the God who is will be centered in and through me. If you're here today and you don't know God and you haven't trusted in Him as the rewarder of those who seek Him, we want you to know that God loves you. We want you to know that God has a plan for your life. We want you to know that God sent His Son to pay for your sins on the cross because you are the enemy of God. That's just what the text says. I'm not the... I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. That's what the text says. You are the enemy of God, subject to His fierce wrath, destined for eternity, for the eons in the lake of fire. I say that because I love you. I say that unapologetically because I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. You will spend eternity in the lake of fire if you reject Christ. You are a sinner. Your preconceived ideas that everything's all rosy, that God is happy with you, are a farce. They're not true. You're the enemy of God if you have not come to Christ, as we all are before we come to Christ. All of us, without exception, because we're sinners, we're born sinners. And we confirm that sinful condition every day by our own sins, either in thought or in word or in deed. And if you say you've never sinned, you're sinning now because you're lying. That's who we are by nature. Rebels. Rebels. Deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. And so in an instant, you, be- you can become the child of God, the daughter of God, the son of God, just by faith in Him. You say, that's too easy. You're right, it is very easy. 
Very, very easy. And he made it that way because he loves you. Incredibly painful for him. God the Son gave it all. He gave his life as a man. His deity, he can't die. Today's the day of salvation. When the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul and to Silas, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16? They didn't say, go do all these things. They said it very clearly, very succinctly, very simply. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Simple. Simple. We make it complicated in our pride. Let your pride go. God does not appreciate your pride. He is disinterested in your pride. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you sent your son to die for us. We praise you that you loved us so much to do that. We praise you that you recorded your word and your ways for us that we may study them thousands of years after you had your servants record them. We praise you that you have blessed us with this nation. We ask that you help us appreciate it. We ask that you help us serve you and obey you and use the freedoms that you have given us in this nation, not for our own pleasures, not for our own appetites, but that we may bring honor to your name. And we recognize that we will give an account of what we did with the freedoms that you gave us in this nation, freedoms that not all of your children enjoy on the planet. We thank you for this nation. We thank you for your word, and most importantly, we thank you for the sacrifice that you gave us through your Son. We pray all these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings and Lord of the lords, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.